Welcome to Classical Education, a podcast for those who believe in rediscovering the art of asking questions, engaging in conversation, and attending to the ideas at the heart of well-ordered teaching and learning. I invite you to join me on a journey in pursuit of the true, the good, and the beautiful as a participant in the great conversation and listen to the many voices coming from the world of classical education. Character education is a foundational principle in classical education. Parents are often drawn to classical schools because they believe that children need character education, and we can all agree that given the state of contemporary public schools, they're probably right. My guests today have been on this podcast before. Dr. Matthew Post has been on uh, talking with us about beauty, and he was also on the Virtue podcast panel. And Dr. Burgess was uh, on in our season one on student motivation. I would encourage you to go back and listen to those if you haven't already listened, because they're very, very excellent interviews. Dr. Bost and Dr. Burgess have partnered to create a cutting-edge, important research project on character education. In the years that they have worked directly in the classical education movement, a common question remains, How do we know that this type of education is really working? And how can we measure character growth in children? So they have created a way to gather data that shows that virtue growth is measurable, and they seek to understand how children are intentionally and internally motivated and what factors influence this. So Dr. Burgess and Dr. Post, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you. It's great to be here. Indeed. Thanks for having having us both back. Well, this almost seems like a ridiculous topic. Like, how can you measure character education and virtue, right? So I want to just start off with asking, to what extent can we measure virtue? And to what extent can we measure motivation? Well, um, I can take the motivation part because there there's a lot of research over 40 years uh, in the area of self-determination, self-determination theory specifically, that does look at the internalization of quality motivation, meaning you have something that is extrinsically motivated, and, and, and over time it becomes internalized as part of your sense of self. And, and so really what we're, what we're doing is extending that work. So, so the answer to the motivation is, yes, there's a lot of work showing you know how... Uh, cultural factors can support and thwart quality motivation, um, but the virtuous part is, is is a bit new, and so we've made that connection. It, it's a it's more than a hypothesis because we have tested it with a with a data collection. So we 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 do have something there, but but we it, it's also unique to us at this point. Okay, Matt. Oh yeah, so I, I feel like the. Uh... The easy question of can you measure virtue has been uh, <laughs> handed off to me. So, you know, there's someone in the United Kingdom uh, named James Arthur, who is the founder and director of the Jubilee Center for Character and Virtues. And uh, he tells this story when he uh, he was given an award, uh, the Order of the British Empire, and he was meeting the Queen. And apparently she said to him, so uh, you can measure character. Um and, uh, you know, what do you do? You know, you're standing up there in front of tons of people, the cameras are rolling. 
And he said, uh, apparently he said something like, uh, Madam, I think you recognize it. And, or no, sorry, not Madam, Your Highness. Sorry, there's the American gaffe right there, Your Highness. Um, your Majesty. Okay, so you recognize it. Now, the trick of that is that what we're really talking about with measuring virtue is social science. And it's not either or, it's not whether you measure it or you recognize it. Um, but we can get tripped up with social science because it is not a science like physics. Um, social science in some way or another is trying to speak to those inner thoughts and feelings and experiences that we have um, that are not observable in the same way the rate at which something falls from one location to another. It's, it's not the same kind of observation, right? Um, and it doesn't admit of the same kind of precision or accuracy or the same kind of certainty. Um, so I think people get tripped up when they say, oh, you're measuring virtue the same way you're measuring gravity. No, that's not what we mean by measuring. And, and if you think about it that way, then you're gonna be unconvinced and you should be unconvinced. Um, what social science really does is it says, look, in everyday life, are you able to say that you think one person is more honest than another? Um, or even three people and say, well, I think this one is really honest and this one's moderately and this, this person's kind of dishonest. And of course, we make mistakes in rendering these judgments. But nevertheless, is it a matter of opinion whether someone is telling the truth as they understand it or not? No, no. I mean, um, we... If, if we're honest with ourselves, we know when we're lying and when we aren't. Um, now, maybe we make mistakes. Maybe we're saying something that's untrue and that's an accident, but that's not the same as lying, right? We know when we're lying. So the point is that we can, in an everyday way, say this is more honest, this is less honest. And what happens in social science is it says, let's put a number on that, you know? Um, why don't you rate how honest you were in the last month on a scale of one to 10. And what about the month before, you know, so on and so forth. It can do things like this. And again, you can say, well, that's not terribly precise or act. No, it's not like physics, but if you are honest with yourself um, and you have a little bit of rigor, a little bit of self-reflection, the point is that you're probably gonna touch on something. Okay, so that's one part of it. So when one is seeking to measure virtue, they're putting numbers on things that are really about representing the kinds of everyday judgments and uh, to the point of James Arthur, what we recognize every day. Um, so you don't make more of the numbers than they are, but they do still tell you something, right? That's one thing. Um, the other thing I would add here, you know, about measuring virtue is it does concern actions. Um, and speeches, but and these are observable things. These are observable things. So uh, to get back to what Steve was saying about self-determination theory and taking a quick assist from Aristotle, right? Aristotle says in the Nicomachean Ethics, um, we don't undertake this study in order to know what is good, but in order to become good. So, and one of the major things, and I think I think we would agree is a bit overlooked in virtue research, is that Aristotle says, like, every, everyone talks about habit and knowledge, right? So you need to 
be able to define virtues. Uh, you need to be capable of a certain kind of virtue reasoning, be able to walk into a situation and recognize, hey, wait, I think virtue and vice are at stake here, or justice or injustice or honesty or dishonesty. And, you know, be able to assess all the people involved in yourself and what you think is the right thing to do. And then if you're habituated to it, you're presumably going to be more likely to do it. But there's a third thing Aristotle says, which is you have to choose the action. And he's very clear, it's not a virtuous action if you don't choose it for itself. In other words, and, and we all kind of instinctively know this, again, about you know rec recognizing things. Pressuring someone or coercing them into doing something, even if it's the right thing to do, does not really seem to be virtuous. Um, and I think this is, again, why some people are uncomfortable with psychology coming into character, because psychology is very good at looking at inputs and outputs, um, what is sometimes called operant conditioning. We apply these pressures and you do what we want you to do. Um, but what Aristotle is looking at and what self-determination theory is looking at is what does it mean to really want to do something, to really choose to do it? And what self-determination theory has found in its research is that if you really want to do something for an intrinsic reason, which might be that you enjoy it, Steve and I are exploring whether there's other ways of looking at this more virtuous ways. We can get into that later. Um, but that if there's an intrinsic motivation, then you're more likely to do it, even when you're not being coerced or pressured. And that's really the essence of uh, doing something that's virtuous. You, you're not coerced or pressured. You're doing it for itself. That's what Aristotle says. But um, the last piece, I know I've been talking a while, but this is such a big, big topic um that self-determination theory has very helpfully done this hard work of of assessing different kinds of motivation from in extrinsic um you know more controlling more coercive extrinsic all the way to intrinsic where it's more uh your autonomy you're choosing to do it for itself um and they've done the hard work of connecting how people assess themselves and then observing them to see if they actually do the conduct, uh, conduct that they claim to be motivated to do. And this is really the most important thing, because if they don't do the conduct, then the surveys are just personal opinions and they don't reflect reality, right? And what they have found is a very high correlation, for example, between someone saying that they are intrinsically motivated to do something and then secretly being observed doing it, right? You know? so. You know, there, there's, there, there are ethical issues that are addressed when people conduct this research. But um, so long story short is that social science research into character is really building on our everyday experiences of character and each other. Um, it concerns inward states that are difficult to measure or assess, but one can say things about them. And that we have found a correlation between what people say about their inner states and what they actually do in the real world. And when you put all that stuff together, I think you can partly measure character. But so that I'm not talking forever, I'm going to hesitate here because there are real drawbacks to this too, but I'll leave that for us to get into later. Steve, do you want to add anything to what to what Matt said? Well, there, there are a lot of um, areas of application um, to this type of work and um, um, I, I think just to establish that we're we're thinking of it in in the school context uh, specifically, um, so we're not as interested in how 
children behave at home or yeah outside of the school setting so that that's a frame of reference for what we're, what we're trying to accomplish here so everything technically could be observable in in a school setting um, and with that in mind um, behaviors could be aggregated meaning a group of students say they had a character education program or a school that really stresses that you would be able to measure it indirectly through the school culture so that's a way of looking at an aggregate of behavior and, and, it, and it should make a difference um but the the connection to behavior is is something that we've uh, struggled with uh with with the scale and our initial version of it the virtuous motivation was rather straightforward it's i do it because it's right uh, and and so we, we had so we did a pretty large uh, about 400 students and, and we, we had some um, solid results about that but we did learn that virtuous motivation and intrinsic doing it because it's enjoyable because i love doing it uh were very very similar uh, in that so we we decided to make virtuous even have a higher standard um and 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 that took took some some work because we we did look at um behaviors uh, in addition to this internal dialogue and and um, cognitive psychology you know just just even saying that there there's going to be a group who disagree with that premise because they you know the more behavioralist <clears throat> excuse me um thinking would be that everything has to have an external force to to move people to act so even just saying that you know we we do have that volition is is a, a question mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, one of my immediate thoughts is how and why this is important for classical educators, for leaders in classical schools, why this study matters? You, you would think that um, the idea of character education is, is not just classical, but it's in the tradition. There's just different words for it. I think it's it's a question of somatic, semantics, whatever we would call it. Um, but um, it, you almost have this experimental setup in schools where you you look at a group of individuals. It's a social experiment, and um, but people are not happy with behavior. I mean, it's 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 pretty consistent across schools, and and so what what's going on there? Um, is it just how how students come to you? Does a school have any any? Uh, effect on, on the overall behavior of students and in every school leader will say absolutely or, or what are we doing all day um so i think it's an it's a natural fit uh, in, in schools um the question about you know can they change it um uh, more importantly how you know what what is the methodology because there are character programs and and i think we're unique in trying to put a number to it um mm -hmm. But um, at some point, you know, character programs would need to stand up to some scrutiny. Otherwise, it's just a activity that that we do, and and so we're we're trying to challenge character education to have a little bit more teeth to it, and 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 actually move that needle. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I know in your study, one of the um, one of the things you're looking at is how uh, the connections between moral cognition and moral action. So explain what moral cognition, moral action is. I mean, I think most of us know what that is, but go ahead and explain that. And then um, how this can be measured. What are you looking for? 
I like to pause and give Matt the hard, hard questions. Do you want, <laughs> you want to have, have a crack at that? And I can follow up on you if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to jump in. Thanks, Steve. Mm -hmm, no problem. Um, you know, so what I'd say, and Steve, correct me if I'm wrong. So we're, so one of the, the tricks with doing a survey in the school is that it, it should not be too long. Um, there are some people that are doing research out there where the surveys take hours to fill out and that is rigorous and and there's a lot to be said for that but as a practical level working with a lot of schools you're gonna have trouble uh getting the time to do that so what you want to do is you want to find something that is really brief but measures something that if you're seeing something here then you know the other stuff are also there as well right and that's the point of looking at motivation. So one of the things I'd say about cognition is that there are people that do measurements of moral cognition and they do look at, do you have working definitions of different kinds of virtue like justice and honesty, uh, gratitude, so on and so forth. Uh, here I'm focusing on moral virtues, which is not the only part of character, but sure. that's the key part we're thinking about here. Um, and as I said before, you know, they will have, they'll even have students, they'll have people come up with situations um, that are drawn from students, from interviews with students where they say, well, what kind of, what kind of things do you face? And they start to tease out real world uh, moral quandaries. And then they have the students give answers to these things. And then they have what they call a panel of experts that assessed as how good the moral reasoning is. And other elements are also things um, like metacognition um, and so-called theory of mind, where they also assess the ability of students to understand the perspective of others, the thoughts and feelings of others. Um, and again, that's tricky, understand, right? It's not like we have direct access to them, but nevertheless, in everyday life, as we offend or please others, we do realize that we do have some sense of what's going on internally, right? So they do a lot of that stuff. Now we don't we don't do any of that. Um, <laughs> we're assuming that there is some level of cognition occurring. And one of the things that I'm gonna say here in praise of Steve and the way that he designs these questionnaires is he'll say, look, we need to think of something concrete and observable that students will be doing, right? Their own homework or will someone else be doing their homework for them? Right? Do they ever cheat on tests? Uh, do they do any reading outside of the classroom that isn't assigned? You know, he thinks about these very, very concrete things. And we spend a lot of time thinking through, is there a connection between these concrete things and the virtues that we want to talk about? And one of the nice things about this kind of research is that um, if it turns out our understanding of the virtues is deficient in some way, we still have concrete data about whether they do these actions. And you can still come up with something out of that data, even if there's something not quite right with your theory. And sometimes the data will actually help you to see that maybe there's something not quite right with your theory, because your theory pr will predict certain connections, correlations. And if those don't occur, then you might revise your theory, right? So, so the action is definitely there front and center. But the way the cognition comes in is we do have certain uh, subtle ways in which we phrase the questions. Oh, Steve uh, is good at that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and admittedly, someone will say, well, those subtle ways are presupposing the child is actually engaging in a level of cognition, but maybe they aren't. 
But the way we assess whether they actually are or not is by looking at the correlation. So if the correlations come out in some of the ways that we predict, then we're like, no, the kid is probably picking up on the subtleties of these questions. And Steve, you could speak to this as well, but I'll just throw this out here uh, quickly that, you know, if you have a question that's in which they're thinking about whether to please others or they're thinking about benefits to themselves versus a question that explicitly refers to none of that, right? Um, why do I read outside of class to learn? And uh, someone challenged us on that and they said, well, is that really uh, an intellectual virtue being done for its own sake? Maybe they're reading outside of class because they want to get into Harvard. And it's like, well, yeah, but if they're doing it for that reason, they're probably want to get into Harvard to please their parents or to impress other people. We should actually see that in, an, in the other part of the survey. That's one thing. And secondly, you might want to get into Harvard and also read outside of class just to learn. It's not either or. Um, and the third thing is, the question is to learn. If that's not the answer, then you shouldn't be saying, I do it all the time just to learn, right? So that does assume the cognition, the, the connection between cognition and action. But um, in a world where we had all the time in the world, we could bring in hours of stuff on this and have assessments and uh, and connect everything, but we have we get at it through a far more um, streamlined <laughs> and very targeted way. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think at this point it might it might help to demystify this by by just talking through an item Matt mentioned, reading outside of class. So that's a stem of you know, that's the main question, but we're not forcing the participant to pick and rank different reasons rather they're rating each one separately which does allow you to be uh, a motivated uh, and intrinsically motivated technically you know or, uh, or virtuously um, so um, for example we we have this continuum it starts with a motivation um, where you're not motivated at all to do the behavior um, and then we have external, which is you know an extrinsic motivation, and then gradually it becomes more part of the self, and uh, the category is called interjected, identified, be, you know, becomes important to you, and then intrinsic, and then virtue. So we, we have these six categories. So for reading, uh, a motivation is reading is boring. Hmm. Um, external, uh, because it's what I'm supposed to do. So potentially some punishment or reward interjected uh, to please my parents, which is the example Matt, Matt gave. Um, and then identified it's important to me uh, to read on my own. Um, and then intrinsic would be reading is fun, reading is enjoyable. And then the virtuous item, initially it was because it's right um, to read on your own outside of class. But our final version is to learn new ideas beyond what we learn in class. And um, Matt alluded to this, that there's always another why when you make a statement like this. Well, why do you do and, and And so there are always limitations, you know, when, when you're talking about reason, you know, reasons for what doing what we do. Um, so it has to stop at some point. It would just continue on and on. But, but we think that because these six um, categories are not set up in a ranking, they address each one of them. A lot of really important things statistically can be done uh, with that type of data right. and, and and we have um we have uh, 16 items that are set up in that same way so when we look at them all together we're assessing virtuous motivation from a whole lot of different angles
this is great. I love, um, I'm, I would like to interject a personal story here because I really like that you use the question about reading outside of mm -hmm. school. Um, so I guess I have a couple of thoughts. I want to share a story, but I also would like to ask a question about that. One being, if your data is coming back that not very many students in a particular school are actually reading outside the classroom, then I'm assuming that a school would want to know this because they would want to fix that problem, for one. That would be, I mean, we're going to talk about the benefits of this research, but it seems like that would be a benefit to know if I was if I was a leader of a school and I got and I, you know, hired you to come in and look at my school and it came back that 90% of my students were not enjoying reading outside of the school. I would go, wait, wait, wait. I need to fix that. How can I fix that? I would be getting to look at solutions. So I'm assuming that's one of the benefits of, of your research, okay? And my story would be uh, with regard to my daughter. One of my daughters uh, went to college, a small little Christian college in Ohio. And uh, she called me, I want to say it was the end of the first semester, and she was crying. And I, and I was like, what's the matter? She goes, you know, I'm just really, really sad for all of the other girls in my dorm that I go to school with. And I was like, why? She goes, because none of them like reading. Uh, she goes, I, I, she goes, she was in the middle of reading uh, Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky as her pleasure reading, just reading it to read it, just to enjoy a book that wasn't assigned for school. And when she started asking all of her her friends in the in the dorm, what are you reading for for pleasure? And they, she said they all started to look at her like she was crazy. Like, well, why would we read something for pleasure? I mean, we just we have to read what we have to read for school. We're not going to read something for pleasure. And uh, and it grieved her a lot. And she had a really hard time finding friends because none of them were like her. <laughs> And so uh, anyhow, so I, th I think that that is a very important topic. And I, I think that uh, if a school isn't successfully helping students enjoy reading, there is a big problem, <laughs> a big problem. So I really appreciate that you put that in the study. And I'm, I'm hoping that that is something that will help motivate schools to figure out a solution as to why why that's a problem. Um, so, so let's move on and mm -hmm. talk more. You can respond to that and move into like how, how this research is beneficial for schools. Um, what I want to say one thing about your, your, your example about reading, um, because a, a school definitely ha has influence over that as do, do parents. And, and I, I know the parenting that your daughter had and, and the, the background educationally. So it doesn't surprise me that she's reading Dostoevsky under her covers at night while no one else is doing that. Um, but whenever we we do research, there there always has to be an and in a research study. Otherwise, it's just descriptive, and so we're describing how they score in these areas. And yes, we can look at some correlations, but um, our and we have have a a couple of them. But we're looking at school culture, and I alluded to that, and and I think that's really crucial. But I think even more important for this research is uh, we call it incentivized environment. And so we're asking uh, about the school and actually also about the, the child's parenting. So they're responding. Are they being praised? Are they receiving contingent rewards? Is it a controlling environment? Do they pay them for reading? You know, that type of 
question. Um, right. And so our, you know, we think that the intervention is not just a character education program, but also take a look at you know, how you're you're using praise, incentive, rewards, competition, uh, all these controlling practices. Um, so there's a lot of ways to move the needle. In addition, and I and we hope in collaboration with the character education program. Yeah. In fact, Steve, I think this would be a good point to encourage our listeners when they're finished listening to this episode to go back and listen to your the interview we did with you on motivation, um, because that is uh, you're right about it being school culture and what's going on in the classroom and how are the students motivated? Are they motivated with uh, getting rewards, <laughs> um, which is a, a huge topic that uh, that needs to be addressed in schools. Um, I will add to my daughter's story, some listeners may think, oh, she probably was majoring in literature. Um, no, this is my daughter who's a science, lover of science, and all of her personality tests told her that she should be a data analyst. Wow, I like her. <laughs> <laughs> so, so no, this is just a child who enjoys reading, just Wonderful. for the sake of reading. <laughs> and it probably is because of how I raised her. <laughs> So, okay, Matt, would you like to add to that? Oh, sure. I mean, um, again, to your to your really helpful anecdote, um, and I, I would also uh, underline what Steve said. I'm sure uh, how she was raised by her parents played such an important, important role there. Um, but that, as as we were saying, I mean, uh, someone who is doing something just to get ahead in life, just to get a higher salary, just for the sake of prestige. Uh, to Steve's point, they're probably not going to rate highly on I do things just to learn, you know. Um, and we're pretty sure most kids are feeling some of that pressure, right? You know, that's, uh, I mean, we can we can measure for it, we can assess for it, but we're pretty sure that's, that's happening. So um, feeling pressure to get into a good school, we're not lacking that but having an interest in learning. But something else I'll just say by the bias concerns um, virtue. And, and we'll see if this is something we can get at, but there is a difference between also enjoying reading and doing it to do it. Like someone might say, look, uh, I don't. And I know this sounds like it's an unlikely scenario, but some of us know that we do this, right? We might say, actually, I don't enjoy reading Aristotle but I think I should do it. I think it'll be good for me to do it, right? Um, and that's something that maybe we'll see when we get the results. Maybe we won't, right? Um, people uh, that, do things to learn. <laughs> that would be me, Matt. I don't, you know, <laughs> I, I keep saying I've got to read Rousseau because you've told me so much about Rousseau and I have friends that say you won't enjoy that. And I'm like, it's okay, I should read it because I should read it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. And actually, I was thinking of you when I gave that example. And uh, to kind of get back to something that Steve was saying about the uh, school culture and the incentivized environment, um, we should not forget, and we and we don't forget, that extrinsic and intrinsic motivation is also operative for school leaders and teachers, right? And yeah. you can certainly be in an environment where the parents are saying, hey, my kids need to go to the Ivy League or these great big state schools. Um, and what are you doing to make sure they go? The school leaders feel that pressure. They put it on the teachers, um, and then and then it it falls onto the students. And self determination theory has even done research on this, in which you have this entire vicious cycle of highly extrinsic 
uh, controlling motivation that comes through the community and then top down through the school and eventually pressures the students. Um, but that said, and uh, and I say this anecdotally from the people I know that I've met school leaders in, in public schools and private schools and public charters, uh, classical and non-classical, all of us are going to feel some extrinsic pressures. You know, we got bills to pay and many right. of us do kind of care where we are in our rank in the organization and that's fine. But what you see alongside that is people do also care about whether they're doing good work, whether they're genuinely benefiting the young people that are in their community, whether they're making a, a meaningful contribution to the broader society in which they live. Um, and insofar as they care about that, to get back to something that you were saying, Adrian and Steve was saying, um, one assumes that just on a basic human level, we do care if um, young people do enjoy reading. We do care whether they think, or I'll put it like this, that we do care whether they think that being grateful to others is something that's choice worthy for itself and therefore something they're more likely to take with them outside into the world, or whether it's just something they do when the teacher is watching because they want to make sure that they get a pat on the head, right? Um, and to kind of get back to something that you and Steve were saying earlier, um, certainly classical schools, but many schools claim that they are doing this. So not only do they care about it, but they're making these claims. And those claims, it is possible to do some assessment to show whether there is merit to these claims or not. And, and I mean, the dark side of it is, is what do you do if there's not? Um, that's one dark side. And the other dark side is, do we start having a report card on the quality of the student's character? Sorry, Billy. You know, you you you've got ninety five percent academically, but as a human being, it's it's thirty five percent. You're really really right. a failure. You know, but one thing that I think is very important in self determination theory is that its emphasis on controlling versus autonomy supporting. Going in and shaming people, according to self determination theory, is actually not going to help them right. cultivate virtues. Uh, what's going to help them cultivate virtues is being supportive and nurturing. And sometimes, and Steve can speak to this better than I can, sometimes there's a lot to do with what you don't say as much as with what you do say, which I think is kind of hard for teachers, right? Um, uh, certainly my knee-jerk reaction, I think it's true for others, is that when you're like, oh no, like the kids are being aggressive with each other, they're being rude, we need to get in there, we need to come down on them, we need to have a program, and they're going to start being more polite. And it's like, well, okay, 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 yeah, there's something to that, but actually there's subtler ways and ways that you can encourage this by taking a step back too. Um, so we need to think, I think we need to be aware of how our character education can be, if from a well-meaning standpoint, go to a place where it becomes degrading of people um, or goes to a place where it becomes coercive in a bad way. But again, those are misunderstandings, right? And uh, unfortunately, uh, self-determination theory has a lot built into it that already recognizes those dangers and pushes back against it. So Adrian, you mentioned benefits and I was uh, thinking about some of the preliminary research that we did. Um, we, we always have demographic variables and, and grade level became the, the one that had the most uh, most interest, you know, I think across all of the items. And 
it's not the story that we want to tell, but the way that we frame virtuous motivation before doing what is right uh, had an inverse relationship with kids getting older. Um, and so it was the highest at fourth grade where the survey starts. Uh, and then, I mean, we're, we're talking about dramatically dropping every year through 12th grade. And that was a pretty big sample. So we had enough uh, sample per grade level. Um, and the same thing happened with the more intrinsic type of motivation. And that aligns with other research that students become less motivated academically over time. But throughout the data we're, collection, we're, we're looking at seventh grade as this inflection point um, because the, the, there's a precipitous drop. And, and there's also a drop in our other work on kindness. Students are kind to each other. It drops. Time passes slowly or quickly in class. All these you know, things that we would like to see as a potential intervention. Um, so we would like to stem that tide. Um, and I, I think that that's, that's the big picture here. Uh, in addition to getting a lot of data from a lot of the schools, we're working with Grand Canyon University. So we're providing surveys uh, for them this spring, initially 20 schools. Uh, and these are traditional public. And, and so, and, and we have paying clients who are doing this survey who are um, charter schools, public charter schools, classical schools. Um, but the comparative data, I think, is going to be really important uh, for school leaders and for us because um, we're, we're making a lot of assumptions about school model. And we would uh, assume that uh, schools that do this for a living, you know, particularly you know, Christian schools, faith based schools, um, classical schools that have character and have, have these core virtues on the wall, uh, should score higher, we would think. So, so there's a lot to be learned, but that that key finding is, is troubling. You know, we 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 would hope that students would become more virtuous and more, more have quality motivation the longer they're in school. So it's a troubling finding. As soon as we saw that, we sure. texted each other and tried to explain it. Um, but it, you know, so I, I think that knowing it and ex, uh, have, having uh, a, a more scientific way rather than anecdotal anecdotal evidence on character, you know, will help a lot of people. One of yeah, my questions. Like, oh, oh, sorry, sorry, go ahead, Matt. Oh, no, something else I'd, I'd throw in there, and uh, you know, this is unpublished research that I, I've been told about. Um, that you know, some people kind of said, "Well, you know, teenagers get cynical. You know, it's not," and and then they bounced back from it. Um, but I have been told about unpublished research that shows that actually they do not bounce back from it. Uh, they actually get more cynical as they get older. Um, they don't have to, but they they tend to. There's a research showing this. And the reason why it wasn't published was because people said, look, this is just not, this is not something we want to have out there right at this moment, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so, you know, Steve's point is that there are, different ways of incentivizing people that are better at cultivating this more intrinsic motivation. So this is something that, you know, we can, you can walk through with teachers um, so that hopefully we can exactly turn that, uh, that decline mm -hmm. into something more positive. And again, self-determination theory uh, will show you that if you have people that are, and, and other kinds of research and character will show you that if you have people who feel like, they're facing challenges and overcoming them, uh, that they have a degree of control over what they do in their lives, that they have uh, connections with other people, deeper connections with other people. And we're positing too, you know, this sense of uh, 
putting the soul together to live a virtuous life, a more virtuous life, that they are going to be happier, right? Um, but to kind of circle back to something I was saying about the pressures on teachers and school heads, the hope is also that they will be happier, right? right. Uh, because there's going to be some ability to say like, look, you know, as Steve said, the findings that we've had so far are not what you would want to see. And that's always a bit of a hard message. Um, but once you kind of dust yourself off and then you can say, okay, look, um, that was sad, but you know what, we're going to get back to it. And, and now we have uh, a survey here that can help us show that we're doing a better job with this. So we can know that give us some reassurance. Um, so we can take deeper satisfaction in, in the work that we're doing and benefit those kids more and benefit our community. more. One of the questions I have about the survey is if, are you able through the survey questions to help the school determine maybe where the breakdown is happening with the particular issue so that they can fix it? Um, we, we can certainly show show the patterns, and, and obviously we're aggregating to a lot, a lot of students. We look by grade level and, and other demographic groups. Uh, we do have a couple of qualitative questions, and, and we haven't brought that up yet, but uh, we ask students, why is learning valuable, and also, why are you good to others? And so potentially that, that gives us a little bit more to to hand over to say here here's what what's happening uh, in addition to the demographic differences so I, I think that uh, part of it is to, you know to put our researcher hat on and, and look look for patterns uh, that are surprising and the, the ones that are surprising tends to, tend to be the more valuable for a school leader interesting interesting this is amazing I'm really excited that you're doing this research I knew you were doing something amazing with character ed but this is really really good. I'm I'm beginning to see why it's really important. I feel like we're toiling away in our laboratory, you know, coming yeah. up with these things and testing them out and ready to unveil. But we're we're in that stage now. We're we're trying to get a lot of responses uh, through a lot of different um, types of schools. So this is this is a an exciting time for us this spring, and we're presenting it um, at the self determination theory conference it's their international conference i think it happens every four years it's in orlando um you know this this summer so the beginning of june will be presenting a lot of results and hopefully a lot of results and and moving forward so you have this research moving forward you are making yourselves available to help other schools um find out what they need how you can help them right Absolutely. Um, they can contact me. My company is called A Heart Solutions. Um, we could potentially leave my email or Matt's email uh, or contract Adrian. You and I um, are in connection. Uh, but really what we do is just have a conversation, do a quick demo and, and help them out with the logistics. Um, mindful that spring is really busy for in school. So we, we, we want this to be painless. Um, mm -hmm. and, and relatively quick. And I think Matt mentioned that it's not, it's not going to take hours. It could take, you know, six to eight minutes. Um, and, and then we present the results right back to the, to the school leader and, and talk about it. And so it's, it's not just here are results, but, you know, Matt and I will get on there and, and discuss it. And I think that discussion in some ways is as valuable as, as the, the survey result itself. I'll put the, uh, information in the show notes, oh, good. the contact so, information. You. Yeah, this is really good.
Matt, do you have anything else to share or to add? Um, just very briefly, that just as Steve was saying, there's it's a lot of rich data about the school culture, the community. And as you also already said, uh, Adrian, we're asking questions that surely people do want to know about, right? Right. Um, and that I think that's good for the school community itself. But ultimately, down the road, also, uh, as we said at the beginning, if a school wants to say, look, um, we're knocking out of the park here with character. How do you know? Well, just come into our classes and see. You'll see. I mean, there is something to that. You recognize it. But on the other hand, we all know that walking into a classroom, observing it for 15 minutes doesn't actually tell you that much. Um, even spending half a day or a day in a school community, you have to really live there. Um, so to have this kind of research and it's plugging into decades and decades of research um, is something that's going to let that school not just know a lot about its community, but also be able to uh, back up its claims. And I, and I think there's a lot of ways in which that that'll be a great benefit to schools and school leaders and teachers as well. It seems like it would also help with teacher retention. Hmm. Would would you would you agree with that? I mean, it it just seems to me that it would because the teachers would feel like they're being supported, in a sense. If 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 they know this is uh, this research is going on, and with the with the uh, idea that it's going to help the school culture, I, I think this seems to me that it would. I mean, I'm thinking of a school in particular that I know has amazing teacher retention. <laughs> <laughs> and uh and and I think that I think that this would play into that and and should be motivating for any school leader to to want to have you help them because especially if they struggle with teacher retention because this could help help with that it could be yeah, something I think oh no go ahead Steve. well I'm just saying it could be a real long answer or just a, the idea of controlling motivation it goes from the top down you know so so I think that in our conversations with the school leaders um we're gonna help them work with the teachers to use autonomy supportive um, um, approaches with with students but 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 absolutely we're, we're doing other work with you know leaders and organizations to, and the same theory applies um, so it's I think it's an astute point that you're making that the retention of teachers which is a great outcome you know we could definitely connect the dots with this one Matt you were saying something Oh, sorry. Yeah. And something I, I throw in there too is this this research was done in the UK. And I think I, I might be mistaken, but I think someone attempted it in the US and it wasn't, it got blocked. But um the research was asking people going into ed school why they wanted to be a teacher. And a very, very high percentage, like maybe over 70 or up to 80%, were saying to help uh young people flourish. And it had an emphasis on building character and including uh moral virtue. And then they did similar assessments when they came out of the school of ed and into their years in teaching. And it turned into it's about uh, meeting regulations, uh, ticking boxes. And, and there was uh, questions assessing whether they were glad that they became a teacher. And that just started going down and down and down, right? Mm -hmm. um, and what we're talking about, so if that, that's, if that is what motivates people to want to become teachers. That's right. And at a time in America where people are fleeing the profession, in part due to monetary issues and other things, but it might also just be because, to the point that you and Steve are making, a question of job satisfaction and why one would want to be a teacher in the first place, 
And yeah, the hope is that through this research and working collaboratively with schools, it's not just about um, fostering more intrinsic motivation in teachers um, by pressuring them less, um, but also fostering that intrinsic motivation, as you said, by supporting them and making it an actual priority that they get to do the things right. that inspired a love of teaching in the first place. It's true. And that, that study may be um, unpublished, but I have had the same experience in all my years of training teachers. One of the questions I have asked at the bottom of several surveys I've done when I come in to, to do a training and I put out a little survey, I have asked, why did you become a teacher? And it is usually that is the answer is because they care about children and they, they want to help them flourish as human beings. And then, and many of them are, cause I've worked with a lot of schools transitioning to the classical model and many of them are nervous about it, but they're excited about it because they're excited about the idea that this model of classical education is or should help them do what they want to do, which is help children to flourish, to be good, productive, beautiful human beings. And um, so that that's one reason that attracts a lot of teachers to want to actually teach at a classical school. The sad thing that I have noticed, and again, why I would encourage all of our listeners, school leaders to contact you, is, um, is that a lot of classical schools aren't any different because they haven't applied uh, different intrinsic motivation principles in their pedagogy and in their instruction in the classroom. And it seems to me that this study would very much help them get to the bottom of that and come up with solutions about how to implement better intrinsic motivation in their classroom instruction, which would fix a lot of this, <laughs> right? And Steve and I talked about that in the, the motivation podcast episode. So I, I think this is great. I'm very excited about this this research project. And I encourage all of our listeners, if you're a teacher, uh, send this episode to your school principal, your board, and uh, especially school boards need to be hearing this one. So I think this is great and uh, more power to you guys. I'm, I'm excited. Maybe we'll have you back on in a year and, and get some more results and, and hopefully have some good uh, feedback that we can share with our listeners about the results of how important this, this work is. So thank you guys for for coming on the show. Thanks for having us. I, I really enjoyed the conversation. I look forward to talking to you sooner than a year from now. Yes. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> Thank yeah, you. Thanks so much, Adrian. It's always a great pleasure and uh, also grateful for your excellent questions and insights into uh, how this might be helpful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can get involved in a few ways. There's a Facebook page where we actively discuss the ideas around classical education. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash classical education. And if you want to help offset our production costs, you can support the podcast financially by going to www.classicaleducationpodcast.com forward slash support. As the great artist and educator John Ruskin once said, Well, my friends, the final result of the education I want you to give your children will be in a few words this. They will know what it is to see the sky. They will know what it is to breathe it. And they will know best of all what it is to behave under it as in the presence of a Father who is in heaven.